You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On April 13, 1977, a family returned to a property that they owned and that housed their abandoned farm upon it. They had returned to the property to search out a pump that was located within their septic tank. However, as they searched within the 1.8 meter deep septic tank, 13 kilometers west of Tofield, Alberta, they found much more than they bargained for. The crime scene remains that they found would be described by investigating officers as one of the most vindictive and sadistic crimes that they had ever encountered. Welcome to episode 11 of Gone But Never Forgotten. Today's story is about a victim known only as Septic Tank Sam up until this year. Before we get down to that, I will start off by saying that I hope that this episode finds you and yours well. I also will take this opportunity to say hello to my much more beautiful and much better spoken co-host and wife, Julie. Hey Julie, how's it going? Hey Lance, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here again. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing okay. It's been a crazy busy week, but you know, that's I guess when life goes by. (laughs) Yep, that's true. All right, without any further ado then, let's dive into a story that received some solving recently, but the murder itself remains unsolved to this day. Let's find out about Septic Tank Sam. Just a reminder to our listeners that our episodes do from time to time contain mature themes that include information about things like assault, murder, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. On April 13, 1977, Mavis and Charlie McLeod returned to their abandoned farm just outside of Tofield, Alberta, in search of a pump inside of their septic tank on the property. However, as Charlie was searching for the pump inside of the septic tank, what he found was much different and much more ominous. As Charlie was sifting through the muck in the septic tank, instead of a pump, what he found was a brown shoe. And it did not take long for him to realize that there was also a foot and a leg still attached to said shoe. Immediately, Mavis and Charlie drove to the local RCMP detachment and spoke with now-retired RCMP Sergeant Ed Lamerts, who then returned to the crime scene with them and another officer. From the Edmonton Journal on May 21, 1977, Lamerts explained what they found on the farm that day. 
Quote, Mr. McCloud was hoping to get his pump out, but this was not to be. The first thing he pulled out was a sock, followed by a shoe. This was enough for the guy. He got into his car and rushed here. End quote. It took RCMP officers six hours to remove the body which had been dumped into the septic tank headfirst. Lambert said that this was, quote, certainly one of the most bizarre, disgusting, and baffling murder cases I've ever worked on. It's amazing what people will do to other people, unquote. Police believe that the body could have been in the septic tank for as long as a year before the discovery by the McLeods, and if they had decided to purchase a new septic pump rather than try to retrieve their old one, the body may in fact have never been discovered. The body that was recovered was in really bad shape. Before the body was thrown into the septic tank, the killer or killers did unspeakable things. It is still unknown if the disgraces committed were done pre- or post-mortem. However, it is believed that they were done pre-mortem. On the body, there was evidence of multiple gunshot wounds. The body had been burned in multiple places with likely a butane torch and cigarettes. There were significant signs of beatings and the body had been sexually mutilated prior to being dumped into the tank. The body was then wrapped in a yellow bedsheet and tied up in nylon rope. The belief is that Sam endured all of these things as mentioned before being shot in the head and chest with a 32 caliber semi or automatic weapon. The body that had been in the tank for at least multiple months was in such bad shape that it took a medical examiner in Edmonton months to even determine whether the body belonged to a male or a female. The perpetrator or perpetrators then went to great length to try and ensure that the body would never be found. After they dumped the body into the tank, they then filled the tank with limestone in an attempt to dissolve the body and any sense associated with it, believing obviously that the limestone and water would speed up the decomposition process. In fact, though, it did just the opposite. When a body is buried in quicklime and then mixed with water, only a small degree of superficial burning will actually occur and the intense chemical reaction will simply dry out the skin or mummify most of the body tissue. So, by mixing the body, the limestone, and the already present water within the tank, the murderer or murderers actually ensured that the body would be preserved to some extent. As noted, the body was in very rough shape, but what was left to be found was actually left because of the limestone, in spite of best efforts to the contrary. In early attempts to try and find out the identity of Sam, Investigators sent dental records to over 800 dental practitioners in the Alberta area and even had them published within Canadian dental magazines in hopes of finding out his identity. However, nothing materialized and Sam's body was laid in an unmarked grave in an Edmonton cemetery. In 1979, Sam's body was exhumed when a forensic pathologist from Oklahoma, Dr. Clyde Snow, was brought into the case to reconstruct the skull of Sam to hopefully aid in the closure of at least the mystery behind who Sam was, if not who committed the crime. 
After taking numerous measurements and inputting the information into a computer program, it was indicated that Sam was likely of Aboriginal heritage and somewhere between his 20s and 30s at the time of his death. Because the investigators did not, however, want to rule anyone out, they listed Sam as most likely native, but possibly Caucasian, between the ages of 26 and 40 years old. Sam had all of his teeth, some fillings, and did have signs of recent dental work. He had a medium build, dark hair, his eye color was unknown, he was believed to have been right-handed, an examination of his teeth and bones uncovered that he had suffered from an unspecified illness around the age of five. He was believed to have last been wearing a blue Levi's work shirt with snap buttons, a gray t-shirt, blue jeans, gray wool socks, and a brown imitation wallaby shoes. Investigators believe that he may have been a transient or a migrant worker. They also believe that he may not have been a longtime resident of Alberta, but instead a passer-through who was working either as a construction worker or a farm worker, based on his clothing. Mr. Lamertz, who retired from the force in 1990, did not expect that this case would ever be solved, sadly. Even though over $1 million had been spent on the case at that time. Quote, Time is against us. If only we could just get the victim's name, we could maybe figure this out. End quote. Files from this case fill two large green cabinets in the basement of the RCMP detachment in Tofield, Alberta. Thousands of leads have been given to police over the years. But until recently, there was no lead that substantially led to answers as to the identity of septic tank Sam, nor who was responsible for his gruesome death. It was widely believed that the person or people responsible for the murder and dumping of the body were likely from the Tofield, Alberta area, as whoever was responsible would seemingly have had knowledge of the deserted farm that was used to conceal the body. Unfortunately, though, no leads ever produced anything significant in regards to a suspect either. And so this case lay cold for a long, long time. In 2018, however, hope was renewed when Californian investigators used a new DNA technology, forensic genealogy, to identify the notorious Golden State Killer who had killed at least 13 people and committed at least 50 rapes and more than 100 burglaries between 1973 and 1986. Forensic genealogy is a process in which the investigators use a suspect's DNA and public genealogy databases to create the suspect's family tree. This process has actually helped to solve dozens of cold cases in the three years since the arrest of the Golden State Killer. In 2019, the Alberta RCMP Missing Persons Unit, which had by then launched a new DNA program to identify unidentified remains, sent a partial DNA profile from Sam to the new database. Unfortunately, though, they had no matches and no luck. With all leads seemingly exhausted, the Alberta RCMP Missing Person Unit and the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner 
teamed with Authram Incorporated to attempt to uncover any leads into the investigation of Sam and his killer or killers. Authram applied forensic-grade genome sequencing to develop a comprehensive profile for the victim. Although the DNA was degraded and only able to yield a partial profile previously, the team at Authram was able to develop a profile that was suitable enough for genealogical research. With that, in January of 2021, the team was able to provide investigators leads into potential immediate family members of the victim. The investigation was able to track down family members and able to finally identify septic tank Sam as Gordon Edwin Sanderson from Edmonton, Alberta. Sanderson would have been 25 years of age at his death. The RCMP is now in search of anyone who knew Gordon Sanderson or may have information about the days before his disappearance and murder. If you are able to help at all in this regard, please call the Tofield RCMP at 780-662-3353. Staff Sergeant Jason Zazulak, who oversees Alberta RCMP's Missing Persons Unit and Historical Homicide Unit, said that, quote, We believe that Gordy Sanderson was killed by associates of his who were involved in various criminal acts in the Edmonton area. But they also believe, quote, between the passage of time and just some of the lifestyles that people were involved with at the time as well, it's very possible that they have passed away, end quote. So who was Gordy Sanderson? Gordy Sanderson sadly did not have a very happy life. He was separated from his family at the age of nine during the 60s scoop and placed into foster care. If you're not familiar with the 60s scoop, it was a concerted effort to remove indigenous children from their families and place them into the child welfare system and foster homes. This was much akin to the residential schools that we covered in episode two on Tina Fontaine. The 60s scoop was a widespread practice between the 1960s and the 1980s in which thousands of Aboriginal children were removed from their families. Statistics show that because of this concerted effort, Aboriginal children went from making up 1% of the children in provincial care in 1951 to making up 34% of Canada's foster children by 1964. Sadly, Gordy became a part of those statistics. Sanderson's adult life would be deeply affected by this, and as an adult, he struggled with addiction and had fairly frequent run-ins with police. Gordy's family last heard from him as he was making plans to meet his younger brother, Arthur Sanderson, in Calgary, but he never made it. His sister, Joyce Sanderson, reported him as missing in the 1980s, but never received any information. Joyce had actually lost track of both of her brothers, Arthur and Gordy, over the years. For her and the rest of her family, including Gordy Sanderson's daughter, the realization of what Gordy had gone through was heartbreaking, of course. Even though there was a small sense of closure in knowing what happened to Gordy, there are obviously many more questions now than ever before in a case that may not ever see a closure. One interesting thing here, though, is that in finding the identity of Gordy Sanderson, 
there is at least some renewed hope in the investigation to find his killer. Now that they know who the victim is, they have an opportunity to attempt to track down people who knew and were involved in his life before his murder. In many senses, this investigation is just the beginning, albeit with the killer or killers having a 44-year head start now. We can only hope that through the discovery of who Septic Tank Sam was, that we can now move into the stage of hopefully finding out what happened to Gordy and who was ultimately responsible for his gruesome, horrific, and untimely death. We hope that helping get the word out on this story will help in some small way to help bring even more closure for everyone involved. What a heck of a story, eh, Julie? What do you think of this one? It's definitely a crazy story. I mean, of course, anything that involves like residential schools always like it has a deep meaning to me because that's just so heartbreaking. But I think the most interesting thing to me about this one is the technology that we have nowadays. Like without all this advanced technology, we might have never found out who Gordy was. And not even just him. I'm sure they use this technology with lots and lots of different murder cases. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, you know, it's one of those things that for families of victims, or even in this case, family of a victim that they didn't know was a victim, it's definitely good. But there's definitely people out there who are like against this stuff too, you know? Mm-hmm. There's people that, like, I can, I'll say, like, um, for Christmas last year, Julie got me one of those DNA tests, and I did it so that I could find out my family heritage, and I loved it. Um, thankfully I knew before I did it that I haven't killed anyone or had anything like that happen Mm -hmm. in my life. So I didn't have any worries, but you know, there are people out there that, um, are vehemently against, uh, all of those things because they feel like so many things can be uncovered and are getting our DNA. But as, you know, as someone who loves true crime, I think anything that can help you close cases is a positive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad that, you know, they figured this out. I really do hope they find um, the killer or killers for this one. Um, Just because, you know, that person is possibly still out there. I mean, he might be passed away. You never know. But um, you just, if that person's out there, you obviously want to bring justice to this whole case. Yeah, for sure. Like, I think that that's the key is it's it's really cool, you know, knowing that um, the investigators now have a little bit more to go on, at least. They know who they're looking into to try to find something That's uh, right. to close the case. Exactly. Speaking of closing, um, in closing for us, as always, we want to say thank you to the listener for listening to us and supporting Gone But Never Forgotten. Please feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments, concerns, or potential cases by email at gbnfpod at gmail.com, on Twitter at gbnfpodcast, on Instagram at gbnfpod, or Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gbnfpodcast. Please also remember that we do have perks and so many more to come if you feel so inclined to help support this podcast as it is an independent podcast that's funded by us. You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash GBNF podcast. Again, thank you for listening to Gone Gone, But but Never never forgotten. Forgotten.